Sonic States. Hello and welcome everybody to Sonic Talk number 118. Uh, we're live, we've got a bumper chat room, lots of people here today. Um, Lee Kemp from Bristol, just like to say hi Lee, thank you very much for sending me the Synthy 100 link, which uh, you may or may not have seen in our news. So EMS Synthy 100 available from France, 45 grand plus shipping and probably another 5 grand fixing it when it arrives. But, <laughs> thanks Lee. Uh, and, uh, oh, did I ever see? I saw Oliver Chesler. There's lots of people. Red Walks, um, Oliver from uh, Roland UK. Lots and lots of you. So uh, thank you very much. And that chuckle there was Mr. Rich Hilton from Connecticut, who I believe is sitting at home waiting for his digicards to arrive. And I hope it works out for you. How are you, Rich? I'm pretty good, thank you. And indeed, I am waiting for the digicards that were promised for an hour ago. Traffic's bad, I've heard. <laughs> Yeah, the drive here from Cali- from Northern California is very difficult this so, time. Yeah, the, the guy's stuck. You know, there's a traffic jam somewhere in central Oregon. Yeah, right. There you go. That's probably it. Well, I hope it works out. This is for the um, for your new Pro Tools system, which you've been you've been telling us is on on route for a it little is. while. Oh, how frustrating! My, and my new Mac Pro is so nicely set up. Everything else works perfectly. It's jamming. It's fast. It's wonderful and. I do have a one-card system that works now, but uh, I'd like the other two cards to work. Of course you would. And why ever not? Anyway, Rich um, can be found myspace.com forward slash Hiltonius. And um, and when he's not at work with uh, Niall Rogers with a D. Sorry about the spelling there, mate. (laughs) That's all right. Um, And uh, who's next? Who should we have next? Let's have Mark Tinley. Hello, Mark. Hello. How are you? I'm all right, apart from the fact I just twittered httpsonicstate.com backslash live music technology podcast yeah. and lost two Twitter, Twitter followers. No. Where have they gone? No. I had 179 a minute ago, now I've got 177. That's terrible, I'm sorry about that. No, what well, happened? You've still got a lot more than I have, even though I did figure <laughs> out how to... Um, I've got my my new Nokia has come, arrived. They replaced my phone. I don't, anyone who's been following my not very interesting wranglings, my phone broke. They gave me a new one. It's got a new firmware update, and it's got lots of nice things and uh, wonderful. And I also found out I can have it unlocked by by the uh, provider, so I don't have to get it sent off to a dark room. So I will anyway. Um, I, I have sorry to say to I follow, I'm enjoying following you on Twitter because as your videos and news comes up, I just go and watch them rather than going to the site and going around thinking, I wonder what I should look at. If I just look at the new things, then I get to go and learn loads of new stuff about music technology, which I like. Uh, my, twic- my Twitter name, for those who need to know, is uh, Oliver Chesler's asking, in fact, is uh, Sonic Nick, spelt as you would expect. Anyway, yeah, no, I've just got a Twitter feed feeding our headlines into it, which I enhance from time to time. Anyway, uh, Mark Tinley, um, let's see, where are we going to point people today? How's the book going? I've noticed you've done a lot of... Uh, um, I've seen a lot of your posts recently. Yeah, I'm getting very excited about the whole thing, really. And I've sent lots of promotional ones off. And have you got yours yet? No, probably not, actually. I haven't had anything yet, no. Given but, that uh, I haven't posted it, you won't have it, because no. yours is a complicated one. Uh, all right, well, I look forward to it, and I will be looking forward to it, and I'll be able to read it. Anyway, Mark can be found at, where should we put you? Um, what, what's the dot .com that you're pointing to? It was, um, let me see, uh, it was logicofattraction.com, is that right? Yes, it was. Thank you. Excellent. Right, um, and um, Dave Spears from G4Software.com. Welcome to you too. Thank you very much. Good. Hang on. Hang on. 
Ah, uh, you lighting up? Uh, Always count on you to promote smoking to the uh, <laughs> to the wider community. I've given up now, so I, I'm no longer affected by it. Although maybe I could smoke vicariously through you. Yes, that would be bad, wouldn't it? Would be kind of bad. Anyway, um, welcome everybody. And uh, um, we've already discussed the uh, the EMS Synthy 100 that was on eBay. Amazing, uh, amazingly, was on eBay, 45 grand. Uh, let's see. Well, we had a few comments last week. In fact, the guy we we covered Songsmith and all the parodies, and I got an email from Tim, who is the man who did all the parodies. And he's uh, he sent a comment, and uh, he said he wanted to tell us how much he appreciated our insight into his classic hits. Uh, series on Wednesday show. Only wish I'd been aware of it to jump in the chat room. Never mind. Next time you can. Uh, anyway, he might be curious to know that he exports the MIDI that Songsmith creates and imports it into Logic, where he uses various samplers, including Contact 3, to try and make the output barely dot 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 human. As you can see, it fails, and it's a commentary on how robotic the MIDI that Songsmith produces really is. is. Anyway, just thought I'd pass that on. Mm. And it was kind of great, because it was literally an hour after I published the podcast, he was... Um, he was there. So we must have some kind of penetration. The seven degrees of separation are working. It's good. Yeah. Well, that was cool. Uh, also, Dan Austin, uh, oh, I don't know if he's in the uh, the, the chat room today, uh, mentioned we talked about uh, Isao Tomita, and he was saying a lot of those uh, electronic guys, when the CD was uh, brought in, to f- in, in, uh, in um, a lot of those guys kind of had a, re- a rekindling of interest because all of their stuff seemed to be... Um, benefit from being released on CD, which I'd forgotten about, which is a very good point. Anyway, that's the uh, contacts, that's the the comments over and done with. Did anyone get a chance to see the Michael Jackson auction? Yeah. Wow, that was from Robbie Ryan, who just said, oh, have you checked this out? And I just thought, oh no, we've done that already, but it wasn't. It was... Uh, Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston, that's right. But this was the uh, Michael Jackson selling off a bunch of stuff, and there's pictures of the various things, and I just thought they were wicked. Some of them were great, and I really want to own a pair of the Spangly Socks. Those, that was the only thing I really fancied. Surprised at some of the prices. Yeah, well, they are guides only. Uh, anyway, I'll just read the intro. Uh, in April, an auction by Julian's Auctions at the Beverly Hills Hilton will provide an unprecedented look into the private world of Michael Jackson. There's the Spangly Glove with the uh, Swarovski crystals, and there's also um, a pair of the the socks. I guess they would have been around the Thriller time. And I, I just I just like the idea of owning a pair of Michael Jackson socks, which they seem to be on for about 600 quid, which seems quite reasonable. Given he's he's the king of pop, as is evidenced by a lot of the artwork that's also on display of pictures of him with, and crowns and what have you. But interesting. I want the roller. What the the Rolls Royce? Yeah. I didn't see a Rolls Royce. I saw a limo. It's yeah yeah no it is a roller that limo oh, is a roller a stretch roller. Park. Yeah, I parked outside my house and I could get in it every morning in the sheepskin coat. Actually, you could just use it as your office because it would be bigger, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, the mobile <laughs> studio. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on to the synths. We're going around the corner. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we could share it, maybe. You could drive it between Bath and Reading. I, mean, I could use it kind of a couple of days a week. <laughs> and you could use it the other two. What a great idea. And there was a snip at a guide price of about £160,000. Rich, did you get a chance to check this out? Yes. Uh, no, unfortunately, I didn't have much time to uh, check out the gloved one's uh, closet. No, I'll never mind. Cut me out the closet. I did actually once, I, I may have recounted this story, my only ever connection with Michael Jackson was um, a friend of mine used to work for a stage electrics company, and he was working on one of the, the, uh, the gigs down at Cardiff Arms Park, which I don't think exists anymore in Cardiff. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, I've got a few tickets. Do you want to come? And I'll, I'll come and meet you on the train. So we went down on the train. There was a couple of uh, 
sort of teenage girls, like 12 year olds or something sitting next to us. And he, uh, he could only rustle up a couple of mates who came. So we, we'd gone down. And as we got off the train, he said, uh, are you trying to get to the Michael Jackson concert? And they said, yeah, we haven't got any tickets. And he said, here you are. And he gave them a pair of tickets. It was just so beautiful. You know, the, the joy on their faces. And there were no, there was not even a hint of sexual favours requested or anything. It was sort of all totally above board. They were so chuffed. But then we had to get in through the back door of the, um, of the place where there were just, honestly, the streets were filled with people sort of freaking out. And we had these passes and you could see people eyeing them up. And we just, it was really quite terrifying. I've never witnessed that sort of hysteria before, but. I'll tell you what I would like. Yeah. That Sega. Do you see that? The Sega game. Thing. Yeah. That looks tops. That does look tops. It might be a bit expensive to ship it. Actually, isn't, isn't it true that the Jackson family have moved to quite near to uh, a, a North Devon surfing beach, uh, Croyd? <laughs> Barnstable. Appledore. Yeah, they've moved to Appledore, which is just outside Barnstable. And that, that literally, I'm not joking, it's like a single track road from there to the, th- to, um, to the beach. And they're going to live somewhere along that road, which means basically every time there's an entourage, it'll just block the whole of the holiday traffic for the entire West Country on the north of Devon in the UK. <laughs> Should be, I'm just trying to get my head around why they'd move there. Yeah, I, I'm uh, not sure whether it's going through, though. Uh, probably not now, because we know. Which is a shame, really. No, I think there were some problems. Yeah. I recorded with Sarandaran in Barnstable for about a year, actually, of all the places that you could record things. Is so there I a studio that- there, or was it something you set up? No, we hired a big house and then brought lots of Pro Tools gear and set it up in a very wooden and, and echoey room, actually. Nice. And then dealt with it. Lovely part of the world. So, Mark, did you see anything in the Jackson auction? No, because you didn't get a chance to... to, to just, the- I have looked at it now, and I have to say that the golf cart is probably the most tasteless thing I've ever seen, and I absolutely wouldn't want one of those. <laughs> uh, I can't believe his socks are $600. I mean, that's just unbelievable, isn't it? Yeah, but they got Swarovski on them. Uh, do you know, I don't even know what that means. Swar- Swarovski worth crystals. Nothing. <laughs> worth nothing. No, you're probably right. Um, and you might, you know, just go and smash a quartz crystal glass. And no, it's I think Swarovski it. crystals are a bit like, you know, those crystal get kits that you could used to get as a kid and you'd hang things on pieces of cotton over uh, mm. solutions. It's like that, but on an industrial scale. And somehow it's what all the kind of uh, wags and uh, footballers' wives wear. I mean, yeah, because I thought about buying uh, my partner a diamond ring. And when you go on a titanium and diamond, diamond ring, and when you price up the ring on its own, I think with this, well, I'm not even going to attempt to say that. Swarovski. That, that one. Yeah. With that crystal in, <laughs> it's a dollar more. If you price it up with a diamond in it, it's a thousand, two thousand, whichever diamond you choose. I mean, for a quarter, <laughs> quarter carat diamond, like it's a thousand quid more or whatever. So, so I think that those things are worth bugger all, basically. I think you can get expensive ones. I'm sure no. of it. I bought an expensive one for my uh, m- the love of my life when I was in um, LA last time. I I just felt I had to. Someone so in LA saw you coming. No, <laughs> I went to the Swarovski shop and bought her a beautiful Swarovski red Valentine's thing. It was supposed to be a bit of a joke, but and it was. And I, I haven't seen it since. So I expect she flogged it on eBay <laughs> or just <laughs> or just chucked it away. Take the yeah. Anyway, never mind. This isn't very music tech, is it? So let's move on. <laughs> Muzak is history. And I, and I, and so, I buy Michael Jackson's nose. 
I don't think that's for sale. That would be really in- that would think, be an interesting thing to own. Well, I think he's probably quite attached to it still. Well, anyway. I don't think he is. I think that's the problem. <laughs> I think it's all <laughs> time. <laughs> Maybe you could sell him one rather than buy one. Anyway, here it comes. Well done. That was the sound of Muzak, for those of you who uh, wanted um, wanted to know. And it's official, because I got it from the BBC website, and they said that it was an example of Muzak. Now, Muzak, I thought, was just a generic term. I didn't actually realise that it has a historical basis, because there's a company called Muzak Holdings, um, which were formed in the ni- in about 1920s, and they actually created a genre, a, a way of delivering music to the workplace, um, and basically um, coined it, and that's what music is called. Muzak is called Muzak, and they've gone and filed for Chapter 11. So I don't know whether that means that we're, we're going to see the end of Muzak, but it's a fascinating... If you go to the Wikipedia page, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, they set themselves up by um, a chap called Major General George O. Squire, who in the early 1920s granted several patents related to transmission of information signals. Among them was a system for transmission and distribution of signals over electrical lines, hence music in the workplace. And they basically did all these kind of experiments and they found that if you have a subliminal level of music in the workplace, productivity goes up. And this is what they did. And now there's a satellite, or there was, at least before the Chapter 11, a satellite station with up to 80 channels of different kinds of music that you can subscribe to and sort of pipe into your workplace. It's absolutely fascinating, the whole subject of it. And I was I was really surprised. I didn't realise it was true. I got this from, um, I think it was the Future Music blog. But anyway, uh, I... it is it a shame? Is it the most disagreeable usage of of music, or do you think that perhaps it's the end of an era? Dave, I know you had to do quite a lot of uh, accompaniment stuff. Does is this a subject close to your heart? Cue <laughs> uh, a couple of jokes. Okay, K- Kenny Lee, uh, Kenny G gets out of the lift and says, "Man, that music's kicking." <laughs> <laughs> and i'll tell you my favorite joke of the week i think i might have told a couple of people here what's the difference between a rock guitarist and a jazz guitarist i don't know what is the difference rock guitarist plays four chords to ten thousand people <laughs> hey, <laughs> 10, and by yes and by implication a jazz guitarist plays ten thousand chords <laughs> to four people Yay. hey i like uh, it uh, i like it i subscribe to the um Craftwork thing of Muzak, which is go around with wire cutters and cut it. Oh, really? Is that what they Sit used to do? Speakers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they used to go around and uh, misbehave in restaurants and things like that, which I quite like the idea of. What a, uh, uh, no, a- strange, but the money involved in this is just unbelievable. Well, quite early on, they realised that they would stop licensing music from other people and create their own. So they must have been quite a big, effectively, a record label as well, sort of. Freaky. I'll tell you who, uh, I think one of the main characters over here for all of this Muzak stuff is, um, do you remember Mike Smith, the DJ? Yes. Yeah, I think his company. So it's not the end over here. It may be the end in America, but it's not the end over here. Mind you, what was that? $370 million? Blimey. Oh no, filed for bankruptcy after it missed 105 million payment to its creditors. Now that is a lot of Muzak. 
that is a lot of music when you consider how much it costs per minute. How many minutes of default does that record does that actually equate to? An awful lot. So that presumably means there will be several several hundred or several hundred thousand hours less music in the world as a result of the default on the interest on that loan. That could be a good thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Rich, what do you feel? How do you feel about it? Is it good? Does does, um, does low level music in the workplace assist your productivity? No, especially considering I work in the music business, so I need to listen to what I'm working on. <laughs> but uh, my little anecdote is I actually applied for a job with the Muzak Corporation at one time. Wow, really? Yeah, it's true. Uh, they were located on Long Island, and I was located on Long Island. And uh, I was looking for jobs in the audio business and uh, ended up interviewing with them. Didn't so what what get. was the role you were hoping to, uh, to get? With I believe it had some sort of uh, assembly of masters, kind of, you know, what they could consider masters. In other words, uh, assembly, you know, audio assembly, putting together packages for clients or something along those lines. Because presumably they must kind of, it must be, I, could, I, can only, I can only speculate, but I'm going to, uh, at the sort of process. So you phone up music and said, hello, I would like some productivity music for my workplace, please. And they ask you a bunch of questions and then they put a tailor-made package together that suits your workforce. I just love the idea of somebody sort of drumming their fingers on the table, sort of looking up at the ceiling and thinking, hmm, yes, I think this would do nicely. <laughs> I just, I can't see what the process would be. and I'd love to know more. Maybe. I don't, I don't know a lot about what, what and how they were providing. I really only understood it from the standpoint of what they said they were interviewing for mm. and whether or not my qualifications matched that. <laughs> Did you um, did you make it through to the second round, or did you... Um, I did not, and I consider it a blessing in disguise. Just think of what would have been different by now. I don't know. You, you, know? Could, you could have been the, the the big cheese at Muzak if you got instead in of instead, instead of spending decades with Nile Rodgers. Exactly. Yes, what a waste, Rich. <laughs> what a waste. I understand. <laughs> Judging by the fact that they've got 80 channels of satellite music, it must mean that they deliver, you know, you buy a box from them that you tune into a station or it assembles the music on your, you know, as you wish and you subscribe in some way. It must be kind of, must be like that. I don't know. Mark, have you, uh, have you ever had any dealings with Muzak or anything of its nature? Uh, only library music, really. I haven't, no, no, no Muzak. But library music is a massive, absolutely massive. There's a guitarist around here who's a brilliant guitarist and he's very good at emulating pretty much anything. And he is one of the biggest selling um, library music um, artists there is, you know, and I think he makes quite a decent amount of money out of it. I can imagine you would, actually. I've never had any of mine accepted. It's always been a bit too weird for library music. <laughs> oh, I see. You've been a bit too um, unpredictable. I guess. Or maybe a bit too atonal or unmusical i don't know it's well, fine to like throw my stuff in underneath like a nice pop track from duran duran isn't it it's like it's sitting underneath something that's by definition uh sort of catchy and musical so you can throw something horrible and unmusical in underneath it and it works but on its own it's kind of not really uh very good to listen to maybe i don't know well i don't know maybe you need to i don't know uh, need to work at it a bit more perhaps i don't know but anyway they owe yes as you say dave they owe 105 million uh payment to creditors and uh file for bankruptcy and it's it's kind of a shame i think that i don't know what 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 will these people do presumably they'll have to pay prs and you know and go out on the open market and if they get their music wrong 
which has been sort of so well crafted by the Music Holdings Corporation, um, will it mean that all the consumers will and the workers will 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 start to go wrong? I can't imagine. It's just surreal, isn't it? <laughs> I, I can't understand how a company like this ends up owing $105 million. I'm I mean, not sure. Are the overheads involved? Well, 80 channels of satellite music's got to be a pretty pretty hefty cost, I'd imagine, renting the satellite space. Yeah, maybe they've got their own satellite. Amazing. Scary. The Muzak satellites. <laughs> imagine it's going to have to be cut loose and it'll be sort of careering around space, beaming Muzak <laughs> into, <laughs> into sort of the celestial bodies and it'll all upset the whole balance of the universe. Well, maybe not. I'm, I'm, I'm fantasizing a little bit. Obviously, aliens will intercept it and go. That's a great. Actually, that's a great idea for the beginning of a film. Yeah, and then the aliens get all pissed off and they come and attack Earth because they think that we're polluting the uh, the universe with our highness sound <laughs> pollution. Hmm. Oliver Chesler just says they need to fire everyone and hire Songsmith and just get that to, to play instead. <laughs> I like that idea. They'll save a lot of money. That's a very good point. <laughs> just feed it constant witterings of somebody just humming. humming I think if we of- wanted to upset the aliens, I went to London yesterday and met Nick in the studio and, the, and a chap from Roland came to see us, a chap called Luke, not Oliver, who's in the chat room at the moment, I think. Uh-huh. And he demonstrated the V-Synth GT, and that does some really bizarre things. Some of the advanced modulating things are really, really cool. And uh, we put a waveform through it and fiddled around with it, and it did just sound like the most bizarre music I've ever heard. And I'm sure it's going to create a new genre, and I'm sure if the aliens heard that, they would definitely... Um, <laughs> attack! <laughs> or not attack. Maybe it would be sweet music. They'd hire Nick. maybe they have already (laughs) great well it's a good opportunity for me to say that uh, we'd like to say thank you to the sponsors of this podcast who are in fact roland.co.uk which is uh, actually a happy coincidence as ever we really do appreciate their support and we would like to draw your attention to the phantom g8 which is the super duper uber workstation that they are currently uh, selling it's an 88 key weighted although it does come in uh, smaller varieties has a giant screen, 128-track sequencer, audio recording, sampling, effects, very high-quality sounds, lots of good stuff for you to check out. And please do check them out at roland.co.uk slash phantomg. I'll put the link in the show notes. And incidentally, um, don't just take my word for it. Uh, we've just recently had some video in from uh, Howard Jones, who's been touring in Australia, and he uses the Phantom G8 Live, and he swears by it. So I'll put the link to that in the show notes, and you can check what Howard thinks of it out and how he's using it. So once again, thanks very much, Roland Co. So once again, thanks very much to Roland.co.uk slash Phantom G for their continued support of this podcast. That was the intro of uh, Madonna's uh, Hard Candy Store um, tour. Uh, I think it was in Brazil. Uh, And it was really just as an introduction to the piece uh, that um, I picked up from Billboard. Apparently, Billboard have a chart um, that basically say who the biggest earners are of the previous year. And Madonna is by far and away the highest earner at $242,176,466. 
and um that the, the top 10 is actually quite interesting and the top 20 it's actually there's not much in there that is sort of one could consider to be contemporary in a sort of you know current current and young and and, and vibrant kind of way uh, which i don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing because obviously um they're established brands and they're selling a lot of money uh, selling a lot of tickets but but the main point of the uh, the piece was the fact that most of these people are making most of this money through ticket sales and tour merchandising and that's it but there was it madge tops the dollar tops. i'm feeling like i'm about to have a tumbleweed moment i think the gating the noise gating on the skype line must be particularly good this week because i could just hear total silence <laughs> wait let me breathe yeah rich i didn't see chic on there i was a bit disappointed are you just outside the top 20 oh yeah we must be 21 then yeah i would think so <laughs> <laughs> but it's astonishing. I mean, these tours are absolutely. I mean, the Madonna tour. I was watching the video of this Brazil thing, and the the the, the actual what I, from what I could see of what was going on stage, it was incredible production. I mean, massive production. I mean, they were speculating that the money that they make on the tour, probably forty percent of it goes into the production, which is a huge, huge amount. So it was a great uh, a great spectacle, and I've never really been to see a gig of a band with that level of production. And so it raised two questions. One was, you know, what does everybody think about um, the touring thing, which we may have covered before in terms of making money from that rather than record sales. But the other one was, what's the sort of biggest and most uh, outlandishly um, glamorous tour one has been on? I don't know who wants to go first. Maybe Rich, because you must be at number 21, so your travelling disco (laughs) flea circus must be just astonishing. (laughs) From what I recall from WOMAD, uh, I mean, it was the show was incredible. But well, have you ever been on anything that sort of really is? I mean, the David Lee Roth stuff must have been. Well, the, actually, the David Lee Roth tour was a club tour at the time because uh, his career was not exactly at the top of, at, at its apex at that moment. Um, from a production standpoint, the most involved show I've done was the 1996 JT Super Producers concerts in Japan which were uh, a tribute to Niall's production career and included many, many guest artists. And the the whole staging and everything was fairly elaborate, and there's a DVD of it. Um, other than that, we tend to tour fairly simply in terms of uh, what we bring and what our demands are on the staging side of things. And since every note that they hear comes from the stage, there aren't the technical complications that many of the current tours uh live with uh sure. seeing as well, where where they're quite often playing along with the record that they've already sold you um so uh and then from the standpoint of crowd size and just view from the stage kind of stuff we've played some pretty huge you know we've played to crowds that were estimated at a hundred thousand a couple of Whoa. times and uh uh, I think view from the stage, uh, Ghent, Belgium was pretty special. And the Hollywood Bowl is one of the best, actually, because you can see all 18,500 of those people splayed up on the hill. It's really quite a view. So uh, that would pretty much wrap up my own little concert experiences from whatever standpoint you want to look at it from. Uh-huh, but the planes are 100,000 people. That must be quite uh, just a whole heap of energy floating about in the air there. Yeah, well, it's amazing. One t- One of those times... Well, it was in a snowstorm in Croatia. We played in a public square in a snowstorm to what had to have been between sixty and 100,000 people. Wow. wonder what it did to the top end on the uh, PA. I mean, interesting. Well, not that interesting. Just a curious question, I suppose. I guess yeah, you'd I can have tell just... you. 
I could tell you my keyboards were basically underwater for the entire evening. <laughs> really? Did you did you build a snowman on the side of your piano? <laughs> I could have. I could. Have. I was wiping them down three and four times per song. I kept slipping off of them. Oh man! Oh, that sounds terrifying. That's the yeah, sort of. That's where you want um, um, keyboards that don't take a full two twenty volts. You just want a kind of twelve volt keyboard, don't you, for that? <laughs> I guess. A tip of the hat to Roland, though, on that one. Once again, it, it was their keyboards. Uh, well, I know you like to use them. Dave Spears. Um, can I ask a question quickly? Yeah. Who's Kenny Chesney? Kenny Is Chesney. $90 million. I, a I, that, was a, that was a good question. Yeah, no, I didn't know that. He's a uh, country, okay. very well-known country artist. I thought it was quite interesting that Celine Dion's up there with $99 million. Doesn't she basically only play Vegas? God, I yeah. think she's quit the Vegas thing. I think she's going back on the road. Okay, well, not surprisingly, the police at 109 million, Bruce Springsteen, 156 million, Bon Jovi, number two, just at 157 million. Wow. But Dave, I mean, what's the most sort of outrageous um, tour you've been party to? It's just in terms of production, you know, the size of production, what have you? Hackney 5 No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> at the Water Rats in London. No, uh, I don't know, really. Um, not. I don't think I've been involved in anything completely massively elaborate. I remember I was put up for the Gabriel gig back in the sort of 90s, uh, and I thought at the time that was going to be quite a challenge. I think probably the biggest, I don't know. I mean, most of the stuff is, you know, festivals and stuff like that, so you kind of fly in, do your thing, and bugger off. Mm. But uh, I'm trying to think the biggest one of those. Probably the In Excess gig at Wembley Stadium. That was fairly massive. But again, you know, it's not a full-on production gig. No. It's literally... Um, I wonder what it can... How, you you know, because you must start to kind of pull the, all the plans together for this, whereas all the people that we tend to deal with... I mean, uh, I don't know if you saw any of the Howard Jones kind of electronic trio tour in Amer- uh, in Australia that we, we ran. He very kindly sent us back some video footage of what was going on there, and it was just basically a laptop, uh, TC Voice Live, and three people, and that was kind of it, you know. And again, I, I'd just been over to see Richard Evans over at uh, Real World, where he's beginning to do... Uh, pre-production for the uh, eight dates in South America with Gabriel Band, and he's now got it down to a laptop, a Motu interface, uh, a, a, a MIDI mallet, um, you know, controller, and a MIDI guitar, and that's it. Everything else is running, the whole thing is going to run from the computer. So, you know, cutting down the racks, cutting down the shippings and stuff, I suppose if you do that, you can afford to spend more on the projectors and the lights and what have you, but must be quite a process. I mean, Mark, you've you've done some Duran stuff. Then some of those must have been pretty outlandish and sort of big. The first, big... Yeah, the first one I did was a bit silly, really, and that and they uh, because they just started to uh, ordinary world got into the charts, didn't it, and started to make a big noise. So I think they spent, if I remember it rightly, I mean the figure that was bandied about was somewhere like seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars on a stage set, which was Whoa. designed by this guy called Stefanos Lazaridis, who was an opera designer, uh-huh. and uh, hired this massive uh, aircraft hangar in Santa Monica, where we were rehearsing. And this is me, like, starting, you know, my first foray into touring, maybe. <laughs> Not at all intimidating. So, yeah, so, I mean, I, you know, we just... And, and the scale of this set was just absolutely massive it went in loads of trucks and then uh, after the rehearsal period we went to the first gig i think which was in tampa florida in quite a you know big football stadium or whatever and they couldn't fit the set on the stage oh, and they no. spent 
two days when they were meant to be doing like dress rehearsals, sawing this stay uh, this setup and basically trying to make it small enough to fit it on any stage that any rock act would use because the oh, opera designer had designed it for an opera setting. Oh, that's a cracker. That's be- almost as good as the Stonehenge sort of faux pas in, um, in Spinal Tap, in sort of in opposite, obviously. Well, the, yeah, well, they had something, I think they had four carpenters on the tour as well, which is kind of quite a lot, isn't it? And, um, and they spent the whole tour throwing pieces of the stage away as we went round, and it sort of <laughs> smaller and smaller, and Nick would look up every night and something else would be ni- missing, and you could see this kind of frown come across his face and then come off stage and go what happened to the shoe and it'd be like uh don't know don't know you better ask the carpenters and it just became a bit of a running joke in the end as all these sort of things disappeared it's like those uh the i, I don't know if anyone's uh, ever read any sort of naval history stuff but i'm a big fan of uh, thomas cochran who's uh, a very unsung uh, naval commander in the uk um Anyway, I, I won't go into detail, but they have these kind of when they're being chased and they just sort of jettison all the things off the boat until they're just down to the bare minimum that gets them round. Sounds like a kind of equivalent of that. So by the time they got to uh, the end of the tour, it was just a backdrop and a couple of gobos. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, they were basically told if you don't stop doing this, you're not going to make any money on this tour. So they had to really get rid of a lot of it. Wow. And I mean, but they still. The video projections and stuff that they do now are pre- pretty elaborate. I went to see Duran Duran last year, and the and the backdrops and video projections and all the the sort of the showmanship that goes along with the music is pretty impressive. And they're doing it, and, and then they do um, an electro set now as well, which I've got nothing to do with the programming of. I, I must add, which is so I can say it's absolutely brilliant. It's all done on those little Korg machines. Oh, really? And, and they kind of do that almost in the dark. And then when they go back to doing all the video projection stuff again, it's, it makes it, a, you know, feel really impressive. Hmm. I've never been. I, I think the only one I've been to that's really that big was probably the the Michael Jackson gig at Cardiff Elms Park, as I mentioned earlier. But that was spectacularly disappointing because the sound was just so appalling. And, you know, I, I couldn't get that close. And um, there he was. You know, I mean, it was it was all tunes that we knew. It was the, but it, it just didn't really work for me because the I, the sound was so disappointing. And I think that's one probably quite hard to get right in a stadium like Cardiff Farms Park, anyway, which was just a sort of concrete bowl, which I guess a lot of them are, but it, it wasn't designed in, <laughs> with acoustics in mind in any way. Chris, Chris tells a wonderful uh, Keith Emerson story, and not quite on the kind of elaborate scale, but um, he was saying about. They played a club in, I think it was Florida, which was about two and a half thousand, and uh, it was full of gaming machines. And they realised that you know the power to the building was limited, and with the lighting rig and everything, the sound system, you know, there was a fear that the mains would get tripped. So they agreed with the promoter that all the gaming machines in the club would be switched off. But of course, um, once everyone packed in there, I think the club owner kind of you know got the old dollar signs in his eyes and turned them back on again. And Keith walked on and started fanfare for the common man. At which point everything did trip, and he was sort of there with um, arms, <laughs> arms akimbo, with no sound coming out. I think Chris just laughed hysterically. That would be because I mean that's a pom- that's a sort of fairly big intro moment, and then you know it just goes off. That would be Ash. pretty. Well, when the, the power, when the power goes, I mean it goes, doesn't it? There's not much you could do. All you can pretty much hear is the drummer, and that's it. You know, yeah. <laughs> and the singers, if you're lucky. And Florida Club, no air conditioning. 
Oh, bet that got fairly hot fairly quickly. I think that was the same gig where he uh, put the sign on the modular Moog saying, uh, for sale, owner leaving planet. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, um, anyway, yes, yeah, so if you want to make money, kids, go out on tour. But make sure you're an artist that has spanned at least three decades looking at this. Although Neil Diamond, or maybe four, Neil Diamond's in there as well. Kanye West, man, down at 20. Yeah. $42 million. ACDC, only at number 13. Bah! What's going on there? That's all wrong. I mean, the difference between Madge at number one and Bon Jovi at number two is just amazing, isn't it? I know, it's like double almost, isn't it? It's just stunning. She's certainly in charge, isn't she? Right, okay, well, let's have another, um, let's move on to another topic, uh, which is didgeridoo or didgeridon't. sound of the tone hammer didgeridoo library um and i i came across tone hammer i I thought it was it was pretty impressive very wet um admittedly but uh and usually i must say that um didgeridoos seem to be the uh, how can i put it they seem to um attract the sort of festival going hippie type uh stroke trance artist in a field with a lighter or am I being a little bit harsh on the didgeridoo? Has it got a bad name because of that? But what did people think? I mean, Mark, you, you said you kind of quite, you thought this was pretty good. I like didgeridoos, and it actually sounds quite impressive, that one. I've seen some other stuff. I think it's the same people do some really good Tibetan bowls. Yeah, and Tibetan there's something called propanium and uh, all sorts of other things, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it does sound quite believable. I'd have to get the samples mapped out across the keyboard and play around with them and see how programmable they are. I mean, I know sometimes these things are very playable, but that doesn't always make them programmable. No, I suppose not. I know what you're saying. I and mean, I can't, you know, so the guy from Roland yesterday, Luke, was saying to me, he was playing a violin and he was saying, of course you can do this and you can do this. And if you press on the key, you get the aftertouch and then you press this button and you get this and you do this. And I was like, well, yeah, I can't really play a keyboard though. So it's kind of meaningless. I don't know how and, you'd play a keyboard didgeridoo because it's essentially one note, isn't it? Um, I'm guessing that you would have the different inflections on the controllers and the, your breathing cycle is going to be a rhythmic thing. So that must have some kind of tempo um, thing to it. And, yeah, and no, I then so. you do that woo thing as yeah. well, don't you? So it's not just a one breath. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And but then they do it. They all seem very well priced. I mean, this, these are basically uh, Academy Award winning composer, Trills Fullman and a guy called Mike Peasley who are the kind of guys behind this, and they've done a lot of sound design, and so they've created a series of sampled instruments that are just a little bit, you know, of a different kind of flavour. So they do the didgeridoo, they do the cylindrum, uh, something called the anti-drum, a water cooler ensemble, uh, baby toys, rain stick, uh, what's the other thing, a propane... What's it called? A pro... Oh. Propanium. Propanium, which is uh, uh, like a... Um, one of those large gas cylinders kind of hollowed out. I guess it's similar to a steel drum, but something that you sort of bash and 
fish and and wallop and things. I don't know. Um, Dave, what do you think? Uh, didgeridoo, not my kind of thing. Like you say, too many memories of festivals with idiots with glow sticks. Uh, jugglers, yeah. Yeah, jugglers. <laughs> Juggling fire that you kind of keep wanting to nudge. But accompanied um, by a didgeridoo player, yeah. Yeah. I like all those people. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Good, I'm glad about that. Uh, I, I quite like the kalimba. Okay. Uh, the friendo which was the tone hammer instrument. They do some good stuff, actually. Some nice different stuff. And there was a piano that I quite liked that was completely uh, knackered. I like a broken piano. Mm. Yeah, that sounded good. The fact that they are unusual instruments is bound to give you a little... Because a lot of them are kind of pentatonic, aren't they? And, you know, they're not chromatic at all. They just have a very limited number of notes. So you, you can kind of... You, you're bound to get into the sort of um, the, the, the pedal note kind of syndrome with it. But it's it's going to give you a different slot on it. That I don't know, Rich, what did you think of any of these things? I mean, I get, I'm guessing it probably hasn't got as much application in your immediate world, but um, maybe I'm wrong. It could, uh, depending on whether we do any film. But um, I love the sound of this thing. I admire these guys for doing it. I think it's priced very reasonably and intelligently. Um, I'm... I applaud anybody who wants to create interesting custom sample sets that do unusual things. And I would, at least in my world, qualify the didgeridoo as that. And uh, like uh, pretty much what Mark said, uh, straight down the line, including I dig jugglers too. So uh, <laughs> so uh, I'm good with all this. I think I, I applaud them. Kudos from me. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that, definitely. So, Different I mean, they're, they're about sort of 49 bucks for each instrument. I think they're contact-based, aren't they? Is that right? Yeah, $45 for a didgeridoo, which, you know, should I need one, in, you know, in a hurry, is a, is a no-brainer. Sure, I'll yeah. take that right now. If I yeah, need a didgeridoo I, I right now and it's only 45 bucks, I'm taking it. I just like saying didgeridoo-don't. That's all. That's why. Well, that's, I, that's why. That's why. I don't know why. It that's makes me all discombobulated. <laughs> oh. Well, check them out. Oh, that's where I'm going tonight. Oh, where? A didgeridoo festival with large and Western convention. Yeah, but I don't need to do a word of the day. I've got to do inspiration actually tonight. Okay, oh, that's your. Um, what's it called? The Toastmasters. Toastmasters. Yes, the gonna, Huntingdonshire Speakers the Huntingdon- uh, Association or something. Right. You're going to break it down like this and get down with the kids at the Toastmasters. I don't know. Yeah. Always, it, it does. It makes me think of. Um, DJ fellas who MC on the microphone. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> oh, Mark JXP, did you inspire them? I like it. Oh. That's a cracker. It deserves a round of applause, actually, that one. <laughs> very, very good. Off the cuff. So the, the chat room is, is, is a buzz with all sorts of stuff, actually. Anyway, um, let's move on to Bolt in 3D. Just because we can. He's the star of the biggest show in Hollywood. She's still in danger. The only problem is... Hold on, Penny. He thinks it's all real. Don't let him out. He's never been off the set before. I'm coming, Penny. Production of the hit television show Bolt shut down today when its star dog went missing. I won't play the whole whole thing. Uh, uh, Matt's series says, sounds like a cheesy movie. I have to say, I disagree. I went to see it with my kids uh, and wore the 3D glasses and it was... One of the most amazing <laughs> cinema experiences I've ever had, I think. It was 
If you haven't seen it, go see it. It's they say you know Disney returned to form and stuff, and it's no different to most Disney Formula Eight movies. But they seem to have got it right, and it's absolutely brilliant. And the three D glasses thing is it's so amazingly real. It's really quite disconcerting. And what was brilliant about this is you know you get these things, the three D glasses in this sort of crappy um, plastic case, and you you put them on, and then halfway through the film, or not halfway through them, about five minutes into the film. It stopped, and the manager walked into the to the to the room. We all looked down and said, "I've paused the film. I just wanted to say, if some of you are wondering why the three D's not too good, turn your glasses upside down and wear them that way." And so we all go, "Oh no!" And we all put them on, and he starts the film again, and everybody all at the same time goes, oh, "Wow!" <laughs> it was absolutely brilliant. So this is a collective moment of three D realization as well, and um, it was it was great, and I really do recommend it um, to anybody because it's. Super, absolutely super, if you haven't seen it already. But anyway, besides a Bolt 3D, 3D audio, 3D sound, you know, there's been, there was the Roland RSS thing, there's been various other things, and I just thought it was a um, a kind of interesting point of discussion, really. Um, anybody had any experience with 3D sound? Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Rich, do you, did you get um, the big sell on the RSS thing? No, but uh, let's get in the Wayback Machine for a moment and go back to about 1980. And I'm in Harvard Square, Cambridge, Massachusetts, working in a hi-fi store where we are selling Carver equipment that includes a circuit known as sonic holography. And sonic holography would take a stereo source uh, played through a single pair of speakers and represent it uh, in in basically a 180-degree sound stage where you were hearing things immediately to your left and to your right, even though the two speakers were visibly in front of you, uh, spaced properly as a stereo pair. And that was my first exposure to something where they were doing tricks to make things seem to appear outside of the stereo field. Now, this occurred shortly after the demise of quadraphonic sound, which was an early attempt at making vinyl records that would provide you with four-channel playback. Um, and then since that time, there came to be a whole home theater movement through the mid to late 80s that included a bunch of different kinds of surround style holog- holography type behaviors. I remember Fosgate was one company that did it. Um, I don't remember all the different companies, but uh, the, the history of this goes back you know, pretty well. And then, and now obviously includes multiple speaker systems that, you know, provide you with the availability of actually localizing sounds very specifically outside of that 180 degree field and even behind you. So that's my uh, that's my uh, history, my brief annotated history of well, Sonic Lock. I mean, because I remember like- the, the stuff that tries to be 3D out of a stereo sound source always kind of sounds a bit kind of just doesn't quite. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm not susceptible to it or something. It just, it sounds a bit weird and phasey to me, or has done. Um, I, I I don't know really. Um, Mark, I suspect you might have played with 3D sound a little bit. I have played with 3D sound a little bit, and I've tried all of the different ways of doing it. Um, and I agree with you. It does just sounds a bit weird and phasey, and it's very difficult to trick yourself into believing something is anywhere other than where it is. And the best uh, one for me is the little earbud microphones. The binaural, it's like binaural recording. And OKM. Yeah, you've mentioned those before. And I, I, I was listening, when I was listening to for various exam- examples, the binaural re- recordings 
were the most real sounding and therefore i presume the brain you know as the, as a listener makes up an awful lot of that three-dimensional information because it's so realistic sounding in the first place rather than mm. just trying to pretend by using you know f- weird phase stuff or whatever to make it so i mean people have understood what the what to do with filters for for a long time to fool the brain into thinking things are in different places and an excellent program if you want to go and play with any of this stuff and it's free is a program called sound hack by a guy called tom herb who uh-huh. is um you know one of these university guys who knows everything about everything you need to know to create 3d sound and uh you can get in that and fiddle around with putting specific filters on things to place things in different places in 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 and beyond the stereo field and it's good it's a good learning tool as well right i mean because that sort of stereo widening thing there's quite a lot of that about isn't there i mean because you know that works in a different way though right that takes the left source and pumps it back through the right outer phase a little bit Mm, so that together it cancels it out then the right and the left i've got a formula here c equals left plus right divided by two S equals left minus right divided by two. There you go. I don't know what that means. I just pasted it in there from the Wikipedia page on 3D audio. I just like the look of it. It made. I like having it on my screen. You can do it on a desk as well. If you take if you take a source and you bus it to another channel, a stereo source, bus bus the left to another channel and bus the right to another channel. So you've got your left and right panned left and right. Mm. And then you've got your left and right again on separate faders, right? Yeah. So you've got four faders with the same thing, essentially, on the reverse the phase of the two faders that you've bust to. Yeah. And then put them in the middle so they're, in, they're not panned left and right, they're center. And then have your stereo source set at zero dB and your, and your reverse phase signal turned right down low. Then as you slide the reverse phase signal up, what happens is the middle collapses and makes the outside image appear to be wider. And I could draw a diagram and send it to you if you like. <laughs> okay, only this is radio, but I understand what you're saying. I think I, yeah, I, think I, get, I, get, it. It. I, think I get it. I don't know. Um, do, does anyone remember RSS? Dave, do, what are you, do, do you remember any of these kind of various things? Because you get the, kind of, the stereo enhancement on the boombox, which I think is essentially what you've just said, but on a button. Yeah. Um, yeah. RSS, I seem to remember, was a, it was a really expensive box, wasn't it? And I remember it had kind of um, dials and things, and Madonna was quoted to have used it on, I forget which album it was. £10,000, it cost. Wow. Yeah, it was expensive, I remember that. Had I what? borrowed one for a while, and, and I did a couple of things with it, and then I took the recording that I'd done with it to go and play it to the guy that I'd borrowed it from, and he was like, wow, this bit's just amazing! And I said, that wasn't the RSS, that was an MXR phaser. (laughs) (laughs) And that was an old 1950s or 60s, one of those blue MXR phasers in the sort of weird quarter rack thing that everyone tried to get But that sort of sums it up, really, doesn't it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just brilliant. It is a great phaser, though. (laughs) Yeah. It is a great phaser. And if you get out of there... A little cheaper than ten grand, still, just about. I would thought. Well, but, uh, I don't know now, actually. <laughs> That's excellent. I've got well, a couple of them I'd let go for less than ten grand. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Each. <laughs> <laughs> 
Dave, did you ever get an, into any 3D stuff? Because, I mean, I, I don't know if anyone ever did game design or anything like that. They're also, they were always plugging this kind of, this way of making things sound bigger than they really were outside of the 5.1 system, um, you know, just from a 2 or a 2.1 system. Uh, no, I didn't. Chris said that he used the very first RSS on an album, which was quite entertaining because there were no labels on the knobs or the dials. So it was a kind of thing of turn this and guess what's happening. And he said they used it on a drummer. They had um, John Keeble, bizarrely enough, the old, um, oh God, what was that band? Spandau Ballet drummer. Right. Um, with a kind of, you know, snare drum doing this kind of marching band music. And uh, he said it was kind of weird because as it went behind, it was almost like he sort of walked behind a building. But I'd, I, I mean, I remember the cost. The cost was massive. And then they brought it down hugely, didn't they, with the next generation? And I think that didn't they end up giving some people their money back who bought the first generation? I don't Three- know. I, I, I don't know. All I remember was is when I – there was something insane on sound about it ages and ages ago, and it was, uh, it was kind of like, oh, this sounds interesting. And then when I looked at it, it actually only worked – if you had your speakers in a specific sort of position, uh, uh, so thus far away from a wall, so you couldn't use it on a boombox or anything, it just didn't really work on anything other than a specifically set up kind of stereo, which seemed a bit pointless. I mean, the person to ask in the chat room is Mr. Number Cruncher because he worked for Sensora, uh, and I think that ended up being bought by EMI, I think, and being used on Frank Sinatra's duets album. And uh, so he knows everything there is to know about all of this stuff. And I believe another one of our programmers now works for Synaptic, which is doing stuff for um, mobile phones. So you get that kind of 3D game vibe. Okay, yeah, um, we've had a couple of reports in. Um, we've had um, some people who went over to the World Music, the World Mobile Phone Conference in Barcelona, and they sent back a couple of things. And one of them was um, running Dolby um, decoded 5.1 and surround stuff on mobile phone uh, video playbacks, which is kind of a bit, it's all starting to get a bit mind-boggling, really, but uh, quite interesting. But it just seems like the actual 3D from stereo just never really, you know, it always, it's like one of those things where you kind of, uh, yeah, did you see that? No, no, I didn't really get it. You know, it's like those pictures that you look at and they're supposed to be something else that they're not, and I I never get them. And it's the same with 3D audio from stereo, just kind of just sounds wrong to me. Well, it's 3D film. Awesome. Yeah. If 3D. you go and see the stuff at the IMAX stuff, uh, IMAX cinema, it's absolutely magnificent. Go and see Bolt, man. Bolt in 3D. I will. I will. My, you, I think my favourite 3D movie was, um, it was a crap movie, but it was quite entertaining for the effects, was, uh, I think it was Friday the 13th in 3D. And it was brilliant, you know, because they had this guy squeezing this bloke's head and his eyeball came out at everybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lovely. How sweet. <laughs> that doesn't happen in Bolt, by the way. It is a PG-rated film. Uh, it didn't matter. I still took the nipper to the Friday the 13th. No, I didn't. But the but the three-dimensional, it just seems like visually you can get the three-dimensional thing really going. Um, and that's with, uh, I guess, that and that is with two sources. But I guess we can calculate depth of field quite easily with our with our eyes. But there's something we can't do sourcing with our ears without actual point source stuff. I'd just like to reiterate that Con- Carver's sonicalography did work without any phasing artifacts, presented material way out to the sides very clearly, and with your eyes closed, you would have no trouble localizing that guitar immediately to your right, even though both speakers were in front of you. And there were holes in that 180 degree. It wasn't evenly, it wasn't as even as it might have been, but it was actually starting startlingly good for mm. its day and uh, didn't present any of the kinds of artifacts that you guys are describing. 
Okay. It wasn't simple phase reversal, as far as I could tell. There's something I else. don't know what it was. I don't know what it was, but it worked pretty well. Hmm. Well, I've talked about 5.1 mixes yet. No, we haven't. I mean, I, I've, I always seem to, th- I don't know, 5.1, it always seems like everybody always mixes albums in 5.1 as a special extra DVD. Whatever, and I just think, what's the bloody point? All of this music is put together in a stereo field. And when you start throwing it all over the place, it doesn't work the same way because you've got huge holes in the soundscape that you have to fill with something else. It doesn't gel. And it just seems to me an exercise in pointlessness and, and, and presenting a load of work for people who are really good at 5.1, but actually the listener doesn't really want it. Or am I just being um, grumpy? I don't know, but what I think is really cool about it is that whenever anybody mixes anything in 5.1, they stick the vocalist in the front channel and put all the music all around them. So it's very easy to cancel everything out and pull the vocal off and get a really good a cappella from it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that's where, maybe that's where a lot of this stuff's coming from. It is where uh, it comes from. I see. It is where it comes. As it relates to Nick's point, um, I do agree that artistically you want the music coming more or less from in front of you, by and large. Although some sort of immersive surround is not objectionable to me but when i start hearing dry sources coming close mic sources coming from behind me i find it a bit disconcerting to be sitting in the middle of the ensemble rather than facing the ensemble as one would in a typical concert scenario but that said i think that there is a lot of creative use left to be learned for the 5.1 surround medium and i think that once those kinds of intelligent principles are applied to the use of it it will prove to be very satisfying yeah i, well, I suppose i mean the thing is of me you know I, I tried a 5.1 system in my house you know my tv's in the corner so therefore you know trying to actually create a decent listening environment i almost have to design a room around a 5.1 system and hide the cabling away so that i could experience and listen to it properly in that in that way and it's just not going to happen in most people's homes and then the only way you generally hear 5.1 good is if you've got like a den in the u.s like you have a proper tv room or you go to a hi-fi store and they've got it set up and they go here this is what it sounds like but in practically in the home it's just not going to happen because the you know the 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 left hand center speaker gets moved a little bit because um somebody wants to put a vase on the shelf you know whatever it just doesn't it's it's impractical works here 5.1 5.1 in their living room and whenever whenever i used to go to their house to sort of visit them you'd be watching a film or something and there'd be a noise on the other side of the room and you go bloody hell what was that <laughs> like glass smashing or something it was poltergeist i realized yeah. it was actually part of the movie but because the speakers were so badly separated and set up the soundtrack was just all over the place and just nothing made any sense it was very odd well, I invite all of you to my living room to watch a movie. Okay. okay. What time does it start? I'll be there. I can probably get there <laughs> in about as, seven hours. As soon as you arrive and I have seven? the snacks ready, we'll go. Okay. How are you going to get there in seven hours? I don't know. I was joking. Ten. <laughs> ten hour flight, maybe, and then... No, it's not ten. It's not ten. No, no, no. It's six hour flight. Six hour flight. See? And I can fly to New York from Bristol, which is about half an hour away from where I am now. Ah. <laughs> <clears throat> although i don't think there is a flight today for instance well anyway um so i think we're probably um we're probably what's it quarter past quarter past five nearly we've we've done well we've actually managed to cover all the topics 
which I'm very pleased at. We've cleared the decks. Uh, we still haven't done your uh, Wally one, but I was looking at that, which was fantastic, by the way, Mark, that film. But I couldn't find it anywhere online for anybody else to see. And short of pointing people to your website, which would probably result in some kind of writ from Pixar, yeah. I, I didn't really know how to handle that one. So maybe we'll talk about it another time. But thank you very much, everybody, for joining us. It looks like we've had a good audio week. Uh, the chat room is full brimming even and seems to i've just seen text whizzing past um at a high speed and we seem to have had a reasonable amount of people and nothing's broken as finally we're on and i'd just like to say thanks to all the guests in the in the chat room love to have you aboard thank you very much and also thank you to my guests this week as well uh and i will start with you dave spears from g4 software thank you for joining me thank you always a pleasure and um look forward to the next time and mark tinley from logicofattraction.com where your book can be found hope you have a great Indeed, yeah. a great toastmeister session tonight i noticed that, uh, that someone in the chat room had said they were looking forward to the movie so I'm, they've got me thinking now yeah and also, <laughs> you could do a 3d noticed that do in 3d yes <laughs> <laughs> now, don't get me overexcited. <laughs> but i'm also excited because i've got another twitter follower since the program started so Ooh, it has right. to be one of them. So thank you very much, whoever decided to start following me. Brilliant. Well, I, I don't, I don't know who has. Anyway, you can follow uh, if you want to follow actually the Sonic State headlines um, and any other witterings I might actually add. Um, you can go to Sonic Nick is my um, Twitter handle. So I'm trying to get above a hundred. <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, Dave Spears G4 Software dot com. Mark Tinley, my um, at logicofattraction.com rich hilton um i guess your cards didn't arrive this morning and i hope they do very soon and you can get on with making your wonderful um new hd system on the mactopus and uh, your calmness is restored well thank you my calmness is restored because i've heard back from my friend at digi and he assures me that the shipment did take place and i've received tracking information and they should be here shortly hooray FedEx, FedEx is apparently backed up because of weather problems in Memphis, so uh, it was actually shipped in the proper way. It's just been delayed because of FedEx. Just one of those things. Yeah, it's all right. Ah, uh, well, cool. uh, I hope that, and that's anyway. You can be reunited, and it'll feel so good. Well, anyway, it's always a pleasure to be here with you fellows. Well, it's been a pleasure for me too. Um, MySpace.com forward slash Hiltonius for all your Hilton type needs. And I will um, remember to spell Nile Rogers uh, with a D next time in the show notes because that's indeed who Rich works with regularly. All right, guys, thank you very much. (laughs) 